chapter 20. Children's Church, by the way, is going on right now. So moms and dads, if you want to take your kids back for Children's Church, I heard there were some people asking about whether they're having it. Indeed, they are. So if you um, want to take your children back, for those who are five and younger, you're welcome to do so. We're beginning this week a new series and calling it The Commands of His Love. The series over the Ten Commandments. And so please give your attention as Kendall reads from us now from God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you now take this word and would you use it to change our hearts, reminding us of your care for us. You give it to us in love. It is absolutely true. And it's meant to change us. So thank you in advance for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you even listening to what I'm saying right now? What parent in this room hasn't said those exact words to their children? You know, um, a mom just this week was sharing with me how her children have this uncanny ability to look her right in the eye, and she speaks to them very, very clear words of instruction in English, their mother tongue. And yet they have this unbelievable ability to give total focus and attention to the narrative on the television screen behind them. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? And this, this phenomenon that you and I both have experienced before as parents, and if you're children, you know, you know the trick, came home to me because this mother who was sharing this with me also happens to be my wife. And Lauren is telling me this story as I am totally absorbed in the sacred space that I have of the ESPN NCAA football blog. And I was looking at all the coaching carousels that are going on, all the coaching changes, and Lauren is pouring out her heart to me about this problem with her children. And I said, the only thing a loving, faithful husband would say to his wife in that moment, honey, what'd you just say to me? <laughs> and she says, without like a moment's hesitation and with very quick wit, geez, honey, I wonder where our kids got their hearing problem. <laughs> Listen, you know this, you know this uh, issue. In Exodus 20, the Israelites know this issue because in Exodus 20, we find that the Israelites have a hearing problem. They do. They've been delivered from bondage. They've been taken out of Egypt, out from under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, and they have been brought smack dab where? In the middle of the Sinai Desert. And the Lord says to his people, my people, I love you, with a unbelievable, never-ending, unfailing, compassionate love for you. And I want you to know that I'm going to take your leader, Moses, up on this hill, the same hill that I had the burning bush burning near many years ago for him, and I'm going to give him clear instructions on how I want you to lead your lives. And so Moses says to his people, people, I'm going up to the mountain to commune with God, and I will be back with clear instructions from the Lord. And the people waited for Moses to come back with those instructions. And they begin to hear narratives going on behind them, narratives of fame and sex and money and parties, and they decide, hey, like, we've waited forever. Where is he? 
And so Aaron, the one who was put in charge, said to the people, hey, people, listen, you take off your earrings and you give me your necklaces and we'll, we'll have some fun and we'll create a God because obviously Moses, this joker who went up to speak with this God, is taking way too long for us. And so you know the story in Exodus 32. They take the gold from their earrings and they cast it into a bronze cow. I, they make a calf out of it. And they begin to bow down and worship this calf. They said, if Moses is going to take too long with that God, then we in the intervening times are going to worship our own God and fasten him by our own doings. Listen, the story of the Ten Commandments is really, it's an amazing story, isn't it? How God went up on a mountain and the people got frustrated because he took too long and they made their own gods. And the story is fascinating not only in the original Hebrew, but it's also fascinating today, isn't it? Because the Ten Commandments for you and for me are shrouded in mystery. Like there are some people out there who don't know what to think about the Ten Commandments. I mean, they're controversial, aren't they? I mean, Judge Ray Moore, right, was the Chief Justice of Alabama and he lost his job in 2003 because of the Ten Commandments. You know, they donned the centerpiece of the courthouse of the Federal Judicial Center in Montgomery. He wouldn't remove them, and so they removed him. That controversy goes into your own life because some of you think, well, listen, the Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament. What's important today is the new. So they don't apply to my life. And others of you say, no, no, You've got to keep these 10 because that's the essence of being a Christian. They're like some kind of mortal sin that if you break one, boom, you've lost all of your privilege to heaven. And some of you are kind of between, you know, frankly, you just don't really know what to do. And this series, this spring, oh, it's going to be the series of your life. <laughs> We're going to look at the Ten Commandments all spring. And the way I want us to introduce the Ten Commandments to you, the way I want us to think about them this morning is under three headings. So if you have your sermon outline, please grab a pen and listen to these three headings. They're for you. We're going to talk about them first as the commands of his love. They are the commands of his love for you. Secondly, as the covenant of his word. They are an agreement. They are a covenant. We're going to talk about that together. And third, they are the call of his voice. The commands of his love, the covenant of his word, and the call of his voice. Let's think together this semester, this spring, about the Ten Commandments under those three headings. First, the commands of his love. I want you to lower your eyes and I want you to think about the Ten Commandments with me by thinking about, looking at what he says there in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus is a story of liberation of the people of God. The first half of the book of Exodus 1 through 14 is all about their liberation from Pharaoh and being in bondage to Egypt. And then the second half is all about the Lord giving them the law. And he gives them the law not as a despot who is just trying to burden down his people to wield fidelity to him. He's not trying to screw the bolts of morality down on the people of God so that they act and behave like he demands as one might demand of a servant. They're the one, they're the commands of a loving God who says to his people, these are not the commands to get you free. These are the commands I give you to help you stay free. 
The Ten Commandments are commands of his love. They are meant to help you stay free. They are not to be met for you like a jailbird looking out the bars, trying to keep these ten in order to somehow break apart and get out of your bondage. You have already been set free, he says in Exodus 21 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Not will bring you out. I brought you out of the land of slavery. And in light of my love for you, these are my commands. Today, when we read the Old Testament, we read the, of the law, and the law is that, is that the, body, the body of commands that God gives us in the Old Testament. According to the rabbis, there are 613 specific laws in the Old Testament. And they're divided into three different parts. Many of you perhaps heard this. If you have, be with, bear with me for just a moment because it's important. Children, listen. Those of you who are young in the faith are not Christians at all, hear me, please. There are the civil laws that God gave to Israel. Those are the laws that helped them define what the nation of Israel ought to look like. Those laws were completely and 100% fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus, the new Israel, came and lived as the perfect person of God on behalf of all of Israel and by virtue of our union with Christ on behalf of us as well. Those are the civil laws. And then there's the ceremonial laws. There are the laws of bulls and goats, of blood and sacrifice, of the feast of the weeks and feast of the trumpets. Those are called the ceremonial laws. And those two, Jesus fulfilled 100% when he came. He was the perfect lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist says when he first sees his cousin coming on the scene. The civil and ceremonial laws have been totally fulfilled. But it's the moral law that Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul and indeed all the New Testament authors assume to still be in place today because not only were they just for Israel, but they were built into creation itself. And the moral law of God stands for us now. But what's important is this, that just like the civil and just like the ceremonial law, Jesus fulfills every bit of the moral law too. He fulfills every bit of the law for us. And yet, because the moral law was built into the fabric of creation, God says to his people, oh, people of God, listen to me. This is my command of love to you, and I give it to you in love. And he gives it to us for three reasons. I want to give them to you. The law, the moral law, when you look at it, you know what it is for you? It is not just a duty you ought to keep in order to make God love you. He already loves you. It is first to be a mirror of your heart. Do you know that? This is what the old theologians used to call the pedagogical use of the law or the, the schoolmaster teaching the school use of the law. That is to say that when you look at the law, what you're first confronted with is that God demands a very, very, very righteous life and lifestyle. And you know, as you look in the mirror, that on your best days, that's not you. And it drives you to your need for Jesus. That's the mirror of the law. The second use of the law is that the law is for us a fence. It is what God desires us to do and to be. It is how he wants to restrain evil. It is how he wants to keep us living holy lives for him, for all men in time, 
These define, this is why, by the way, Judge Ray Moore got in trouble because he was using that as an example in the public square of how it is a fence to help restrain evil. People took it as a statement of religion and that's why he lost his job. But it is that, it is a fence to remind people that inside this, you may roam wherever you want, but do not cross that fence. It is given to us, it is given to us by our Heavenly Father. This is the civil use of the law. And then not only is it a mirror, not only is it a fence, but it's also a signpost. It's a signpost to point to us what God desires our lives to be like now. This is what he wants us to do and to be. He gives it to us. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. This is what John Calvin said is the highest function of the law. It is to serve as an instrument for God's people. It is called the normative use of God's law. Now, don't let me confuse you by all these different uses of the law. They're just meant to help you as illustrations of what the Old Testament moral law should be. It's a mirror. What else did I say it was? It's a fence. And then what? A signpost. Those are the three uses of the law. And so as we enter into this discussion on the Ten Commandments, please, you're going to be tempted by the devil and by the world to think, these are the laws I must keep to get God to love me more. He already loves you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. But these are the commands of my love. Second, the covenant of his word. Notice how they start. They do not start with a command, do they? They start with a declaration of what he has already done for you. The structure of the Old Testament takes um, shape just like the old covenants used to in the ancient Near East. And in many ways, they take place just like the covenants that you and I signed when we bought our house or we signed the lease or we struck the business deal, right? There's a declaration of the parties. Then there's what? There's the stipulation of, of the blessings that will come upon you keeping that contract. And there's the threats of what will happen to you if you don't. And then there's the results of what will be yours if you fulfill that contract. It's the same in the Old Testament. It takes the shape of what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. It is that there's a suzerain, there's a king, there's somebody who comes in, like, like the ancient Hittite king may come in and say, I am Elishi, the great God who rules over all. And I now decree to you the covenant I've made with men. This is, this is an example of a Hittite ancient Near East treaty at the same time that we find this testament that's written to the Hebrews. But unlike the Hittite God, what does God do for us? It is, it is not a covenant like you and I would sign right down the street at Caldwell Banker. That's a mutual covenant. We both agreed to the terms of the price of the property. We both signed on the dotted line. We were both under obligation. But here you see that God himself is the one who strikes the terms. He himself is the one who sets the threats. He himself is the one who bestows on us the blessing. It is not mutual. It's unilateral. God comes to us. He pursues us. And the whole idea behind God pursuing people, pursuing God's people over time, all throughout Scripture, is called an agreement. Or better, it's called a covenant. 
And a covenant is the biblical term for God's successive relationships to his people, each one building on the other over time, to declare in summary this one statement. I am your God, you are my people, and I will dwell with you. And all throughout the Bible, God comes to them, first with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then here with Moses, and later with David, and then in the most significant of the covenants, the one with Jesus, the new covenant, who Jesus fulfills utterly and completely in his perfect life and sacrificial death for you and me. It is the covenant of his word. And if you're going to understand the covenant of his word, you have to understand, third, the call of his voice. The call of his voice. And for you to hear that call, I want you to take, I want to take you back all the way to what Kendall read earlier in Genesis chapter 2. You remember in the very, very beginning when God created the world. Like when God created the world, he created the world out of the overflow of the love that he had with himself, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the creation of the world came forth because it burst forth out of this overwhelming fut- uh, uh, fertility and love and gladness that God had in himself. And so you read in Genesis 1, it just explodes. You read of light and darkness. You read of sea and land. You read of sky and you read of rock. You read of feather and bone. You read, you read of man and you read of woman. You read of God and you read of creation. All these things. Like when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's like, like I can see your little like greenhouse brain like bursting forth because it can't contain this unbelievable beauty of the overflowing love of God as it bursts on the scene for the world. And he makes a covenant with Adam. And that's the covenant that Kendall read for us earlier. The covenant comes from Genesis 2, and he says in verse 15, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, our hearing problem that we have today It's the same problem that the Israelites had back then. It's, in fact, the same problem that our very first father, Adam himself, had in the garden, wasn't it? Because God had many trees, we assume, in the garden, but he talks of two of them, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to Adam, my friend, the one who is my vice regent over creation, the one who I intimately know and who intimately knows me, you may eat of all the trees in the garden except one, the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God tell Adam that? It's because God wanted Adam to know sin and what is wrong the same way that God did. He wanted Adam to know what is wrong in the same way that God knew what was evil. By knowledge of it, but not by experience of it. Think about that for a moment. That God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good. Because God always intended Adam to know what was wrong, but not to experience it. But Adam stopped listening to the Lord and he listened to his own experience. And that's the question that comes out of the Ten Commandments for you and for me. What is it that structures your life? Or better yet, whose voice do you listen to? 
Do you listen to the Lord's clear clarion call of love for you that he gives to you? And he gives them to you, Old and New Testament, completely from him, absolutely true. They are his love letters for you, and they are given to you in love. Or do you listen to the voice of your experience? And oftentimes, those are the two competing things against one another. Which one of those two finally wins out? When Adam fell from the garden, what did he do? He, he, he closed the garden, and God kicked Adam out. And he, he closed the garden by the fiery cherubim, right? And isn't it interesting that these fiery cherubim are the same fiery cherubim that God later tells Moses and later they build in the temple, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. What's on the Holy of Holies? What's on the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple? It was those same cherubim. And when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? The cherubim come down. And there is open for you and for me a way back to the garden of his love, as it were. A way of hope for you and for me. Listen, the whole Bible is a, it's an incredibly romantic story of God's love for his people. And he gives it to us by way of covenants. And he calls us with his voice. The question is, do you hear his voice or do you listen to the voice of your own experience? Friends, this is so important. And I need your help to do this because I know that even in my own life, more times than I want to admit every day, I listen to the voice of my experience and not the command of the Lord. But God calls you and woos you in love. Song of Solomon, you know, the, one of the stories that we read, it's probably the, the, the book of the Bible most read in secret of any books of the Bible. Song of Solomon, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 13, you know, you have the shepherd calling out to his bride, come away with me, O beautiful one. Come away with me into my love. Listen, that is a picture, yes, of a husband and a wife in the ancient Near East, but the church has always considered that a picture of Christ's and his love for the church, Christ's love for his bride, to woo us away. And this love of God for the, uh, of, for the church, of Jesus for his people, it's not just in the Song of Solomon, it's all throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah, for example, God calls his people my bride. In Hosea, God is pictured as a broken-hearted husband. In Zephaniah, God rejoices over his people with singing. And then in the New Testament, an even clearer picture we have of Jesus who says to his people, come away with me, come follow me. Do you hear the voice of the Song of Solomon, of Jesus wooing you, those he loves? All of you, Jesus says, I'm coming over to your house today. I'm coming to have a meal with you because I love you. To the woman, he says, what you have done for me is so beautiful. Jesus calls himself both the shepherd and the groom. Are you with me? Are you hearing what I'm saying? His people he calls my beautiful bride. At the end of the Bible, to his beloved world, he says, I am coming soon. Listen, this is the voice of the call of a lover to his people. He loves you. And when you read of the law in the Old Testament, when you read of the Ten Commandments, this is why the psalmist in Psalm 119.97 can say, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Because they're like an engaged couple. 
longing to read the letters of their betrothed. This is the normal life for a Christian, to be wooed by their lover, King Jesus, who loves you. And this, like, romantic language of Jesus wooing you and longing for you, this isn't foreign in the Bible. This is shot through throughout it. He loves you. And what does love have to do with duty? Everything. Their commands of his love. Through a covenant of his word. And we need to hear the call of his voice. They're a call of love. Not only are they a call of love, but they're also a call to fruitfulness. Listen, life with God is a call to live a fruitful life. It is a fruitful life. You know, as soon as God creates man in the garden, what does he start talking about? He starts talking about having babies. Like, it's a life of fruitfulness. Jesus says that I am the true vine. He wants to invite you in to be branched with him. Jesus says to you, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus says to you, what your life should be characterized is by the fruit of the Spirit. This whole idea of fertility and fruitfulness, this is the normal Christian life. It is given to you. Jesus expects you to be able to grow in greater fruitfulness. God himself is a, his own perpetual spring. And Jesus says to us that the evil one comes to kill, to steal, to kill and destroy and many things want to take that fruit away, but we must walk together. We must spin it out into the world as Christ's cross-shaped community, as a young church plant called Trinity. We must be his hands and feet in this world because he loves you. And the commands that he gives you and the commands of the law are commands of love. Now, how does that work in our own life? Let me just mention a couple of examples and then I'll close. Think about the seminal characters of the Bible. Think about Adam who dropped the ball and failed. And we, by virtue of our union with Adam, born in sin, were there in that garden. Think about the greater Adam, Jesus the Christ, who was the second Adam, who now, if you have faith in Jesus, you are now united with Christ. And everything that Jesus has done, it's as if you did it. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. So as we read in the service in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted, what does he do? He immediately goes to what? To God's word, doesn't he? Because he's hearing clearly. He's not listening to the voice of his own experience. Notice he was thirsty. And Jesus says, man shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that how you live? It is the way Christ's people are called to live because we're called to live in his love. Or think about David, when David was in the En Gedi. He was in the area where the, where the rocks and the crags, and he's hiding out from Solomon and his men, as, I mean, as Saul and his men, as Saul come to kill him. You remember, there's a story where David and his men are hiding in the cave, and Saul and his men are out looking for David, and Saul needs to excuse himself, and so he goes into this cave to relieve himself, doesn't he? And all of David's men are in the cave, and they see Saul walk in, and they think, we got him. There he is. Get him, David. And David walks up to him, and what does he do? He cuts off the hem of his garment. And then Saul leaves, and David waves it up and says, Saul, Saul, do you see what I could have done for you? 
And all of David's men says, why didn't you take him out? And David says, because the Lord's word said not to kill him. He didn't rely on his own experience. He trusted the promise of the Lord. Or Paul in um, the road to Damascus. Remember, he's blinded by the light in chapter 9. And then the Lord says to him, go into the city, and there I will what? There I will tell you by my word what you shall do. And then, of course, with Jesus, who comes, the living word of God, who is for us the utter and complete fulfillment of this law, who comes to you and says, come away with me, my love. Let me show you what it's like to live as the people of God, to be fruitful in this world, to not be sour, to not be old, to not be rancid, but to live out my hands and feet in this world today, now. These are for you. These aren't just for the Old Testament Israelites. They are for you, and they are given to you in love and hope. This 17th century Puritan, John Owen, Before I quote Owen, let me just say this. I know some of you, I know some of you look at the Ten Commandments, and some of you have a real fear of failure when you look at them. And some of you like the Old Testament law. You don't like to think about the law. You don't like to think about it because you're afraid of legalism. You're afraid of of works righteousness. Listen to me. The reason you're afraid of works righteousness is because you do not believe that God loves you as he does. Come away with me, my love. This is how we are to live. Some of you are afraid of failure. Any high achievers in this room? Yeah, I think there's a few. You're afraid of failure, and there are things that you look at in life and say, I'm never even going to start that because I can't do it perfectly. These commands are for you. And Jesus is not going to look at you and say, you're a failure. He's going to look at you and say, I love you. Some of you are afraid of the shame that's going to come upon you, that maybe already has come upon you. Listen, Jesus doesn't see your shame. He wraps you in his arms and he sings over you his love, as Zephaniah says, and as I say every week in the benediction, because he loves you. He comes for you. He cares for you. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, says, Above all things, the Father loves you. Be fully assured in your hearts that the Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father in his love. Have no fear about his love for you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on your Father is not to believe that he loves you. His, it's a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from him. Let us remember how eager, how willing he is to embrace us as, our, as his children. If we did this, we would not be able to bear an hour away from his presence. Let this be your first thought because there are many discouragements that come our way. When you take on the Ten Commandments and you live by them, they are a mirror of your heart and they are to pierce your soul. And all spring, we're gonna do it week after week as we take them each one by one. But I want you to know that Jesus looks at you the same way that my college professor looked at me one day in class. I may have shared this story with you before. I can't remember. I had a class at A&M called Marketing 101. It was led by a guy named Ben Welch. Ben Welch was well-known to many of the brothers that were in our class. We all sat on the same road together. He was the sponsor of our campus organization. 
at the end of class, we'd worked very hard for this class. At the end of class, Ben Welch walked up to us on this row and he shook our hands, right? This is the last day of class before we go home and study for the final. And he said, congratulations, well done. Do not come to my final. You get an A in my class. And he comes down the road, every man that was in this organization, and he says, you get an A in my class. Now, part of us, like, freak out. Like, that's so wrong, right? That's so illegal, you can't do that. But he did it. And every one of us on that row got an A in that class because of the work of somebody else. And it's the same way when you face the Ten Commandments. You are not going to keep them all. And they're going to beat you down. And you're going to be overwhelmed. But listen, as they beat you down, they are a mirror of God's love for you. They remind you that you're unable to do what Christ can do. Because at the end of time, Jesus, though we're going to be judged in the body, in whatever we did, whether good or bad, Ultimately, Jesus is going to look at you and he's going to say, you know what? I know you. You are part of my organization, the church. I know you and I love you. You get the grade that I earned for you. The commands of my love, the covet of my word, and the call of his voice. Do you know how much your Savior loves you? Let's enter into the Ten Commandments this semester under those three rubrics, knowing that he calls us as one who woos his children as one who fulfilled the law in every way, as those who now rest in his finished work, covered in his righteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you fulfilled the law. Every jot and tittle, you say in Matthew 5, you fulfilled for us. And to obey the law is to love. And we know, Lord, that you've given us the contours of love by showing us the law in the Old Testament and calling us to obey it because that is the way you've called your people to live and so Lord help us to do it in joy it is not the law of a despot trying to burden down his people it is the law of a liberator who wants us to stay free and in his love so Jesus would you help us would you prepare us now to feed on you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we prepare our hearts and our minds for giving, let us go, to the, let's go, let us go in prayer to the one who has given much for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you for this chance that we have now to give. And Lord, we confess that although we know from your word that you will meet our every need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Yet we all too often find our security and our comfort and our entitlement and our value in our savings accounts and our 401ks and our money. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to be radical givers in the name of him who has given much for us, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>